This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. It has been now nearly two weeks since the story broke about racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, and anti-democratic musings between the former president of Los Angeles City Council, two other council members, and the former head of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor. While we were sitting in our Sukkot, Zman Simchatenu, our time of great joy, an uproar was heard, not only around the city and state, but around the country, as people began to listen to these appalling recordings, which I am sure by now many of you have heard. They were crude and egregious and outrageous attacks on one city council member's black son. There was criticism of black power and representation in Los Angeles. There were attacks on the Oaxacan and Armenian populations. Oh, and the Jews were not spared either. We heard these people in power decrying the Jewish agenda and Jewish deal-making. Now, this could be a sermon about the care that each of us must take even behind closed doors. Assume the mic is hot is what I would label that sermon. Speak in private the way that you speak in public. And that would be a really good lesson for all of us to take from this, but that's certainly not the only lesson. Because since this has occurred, the work of our great city, home to over 4 million people, has essentially been brought to a standstill. Because you see, the city council member, uh, the city council president, thankfully stepped down as did the labor leader, but two others who are on this racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-democratic recording have refused to sit, step down. Those two alternately laughed, sat in silence, and goaded the main offenders on this tape. So this could be a sermon about the enablers. You've heard that sermon, unfortunately, too many times over the past several years, those people who are unwilling to stand up to those who are in power to do the right thing, which is precisely what makes it possible for people of ill will to persist in their callousness and in their cruelty and to amass and use their power to bitter ends. But that too is not the only lesson for us from this debacle in the city of Los Angeles. What else, I ask, is there for us to learn today? So I want to tell you about a story of two siblings, the first two siblings ever, which appear in this week's parasha in chapter four. Cain came first. He was a miracle, the first human being born to other human beings. And shortly thereafter, his brother Abel was born. They're different, these two, but their work is complementary. One of them is a shepherd out in the field. The other is a farmer. He's a, a tiller of soil. And they're both doing their best to survive. Life is not easy for them. Remember, just before they were born, 
The land itself was cursed. To Adam, God said, because you did what your wife said and ate from the tree that I told you not to eat from, cursed be the ground because of you. By hard labor shall you eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles will it sprout for you. Maybe it's because the work he has to do is so damn hard that for every last fruit he can bring from this earth, he has to exert himself to such a great extent that Cain births an idea. Maybe I should bring an offering, an expression of gratitude to win God's favor. And Abel then follows suit, bringing the very best of what he could bring. But Abel's offering is received more warmly than his brother's for reasons we do not understand. And this greatly enrages Cain. He's working so hard. He's doing his best. Why is his brother getting more than he has? Why does his brother get more love, more power, more accolades, better districting than he gets? God sees that Cain is upset. God sees that Cain's getting jealous that he started to think more competitively rather than collaboratively. Instead of working with his brother, he starts to turn against him. He starts to strategize, how can I accrue more power, more love, more credit? And let me point out that Cain is not wrong to be upset. His claim is a righteous claim. The system has treated him unfairly. He deserves more than he has gotten. But God can see that this kind of competitive spirit threatens to wreak havoc on this family. God witnesses Cain turn then against his own brother, who after all did nothing more than fight for his own rights, for his own deserved acceptance and recognition and love. I see that you're upset, my dear Cain, God warns. You feel that you've been wrong, but watch your step. Be very careful. Don't go to war with your own brother. This is a family after all, remember? Please, God begs, don't do anything stupid. I promise you, you will regret it. And then God lays it out. Either you get straight with your brother now or you will end up harming him and that will harm you too. Cain approaches his brother. Maybe he's trying to reconcile. Maybe he wants to confront him. We have... No idea in this case what happened behind closed doors. All we know is that he lays it down hard, so hard that he leaves his brother for dead in the field. Alas, whatever Cain believed would happen in private would stay in, in private, was not shielded from God's sight. A Hevel Achicha, God asks him, where is your brother? What have you done? This is a rhetorical question, of course, because God knows exactly what Cain has done, but God wants to teach Cain a lesson. Cain is caught. He panics. Lo yadati. I have no idea, he said. It wasn't me. I don't know. Hashomer achi anochi. Am I my brother's keeper? Is my, pain, is my brother's pain my responsibility? And it is for this. It is for this dissociation with his own brother, for his failure to accept responsibility for the harm that he has caused. It is for this that he is punished ultimately severely. He's caught. There's no way out now. 
And that's when Cain finally acknowledges his wrongdoing. He pleads for protection. He pleads for a lesser punishment. And God, merciful, as almost always, assures him, you will have a mark on you forever for what you've done. But you'll survive. Listen to this. In this short narrative, the fact that Cain and Abel are brothers is repeated seven times. And yet it is the most obvious thing of all. We don't need the Torah to tell us that they're brothers. We already know this. They have the same parents, the only other two humans who are alive in the world at this point. Clearly, they are brothers. So why does the Torah repeat seven times that they're brothers? We're right at the beginning of the Torah. So I want to remind you the key to the idea of Jewish hermeneutics, as Lucy already suggested to us today, not only of this narrative, but of every narrative in this book, is that nothing is superfluous. When you see something that appears to be strange or bizarre or repetitive, it's there for a reason. The repetition in this narrative, seven times that Cain and Abel were brothers, comes to teach us that the key question of the entire Hebrew Bible is where is your brother? And to emphasize the failure of Cain's response, am I actually responsible for that guy? The teacher of my teachers, Rabbi Marshall Meyer, once wrote that the Jewish answer that resounds and reverberates throughout history to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is a resounding yes. We are our brother's keepers. We are our sister's keepers. Whether we desire it or not, whether we find it comfortable or not, feasible or not, pleasant or not, we are all responsible for each other in this society. And listen to what the great biblical scholar Nachum Sarna writes. He says, the Bible wishes to establish emphatically the moral principle that man is indeed his brother's keeper and that all homicide is at the same time fratricide. All homicide is fratricide. What are we to do with that here? In our place and in our time where no murder has been committed, thank God, though public shaming of another is surely akin to murder. What is there for us to learn? We extrapolate from this lesson to our own time. All homicide is at the same time fratricide. You think that you're going after one another, but in fact, you're going after your own brother, your own sibling. You think you're hurting someone else, but in fact, you are hurting yourself by diminishing the other, your brother. You are undermining your own struggle. I want to say something that I know that some of you might not agree with at first. This explosive conversation that was held by four prominent non-white politicians was white supremacist. So how can that be? Because essential to white supremacy, the original sin of this nation, the cancer that is at the heart of all of the political discontent in our nation, in our time, is the myth of the limited pie it's the zero-sum game, the idea that if one group gains power, it must come at the expense of another. So if Black people achieve political power, it can only come at the expense of poor whites or Asians or Latinos. When we engage in this kind of zero-sum thinking, we forget that we are all siblings. 
each of us and all of us deserving of the good. To counter white supremacy in our nation, we have to counter the thinking that fuels it. Rather than turn against each other, we have to turn toward each other rather than assume that your gain is my loss. Your representation is my disenfranchisement. Your liberation is my oppression. We have to recognize that your liberation is essential to my own. We have to trust that the only way that we can build the beloved community is by allying with each other and by lifting us all. There simply is no liberation for Latinos that is anti-Black or anti-Indigenous or anti-Semitic. There is no liberation for any of us unless and until there is a just future for all of us. And I have to say that this is what I love about this city. You know I'm a New Yorker at heart, or I was once, but this is what I love about Los Angeles. This is one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the entire world. And it's not always easy as our history and our politics have shown, but amidst the diversity in this city, there have grown decades of true allyship and friendship between Black and Latino and AAPI leaders and communities between Jewish and Muslim and Christian and Sikh leaders and communities. And these relationships have held strong through incredibly tumultuous times. They are the glue to this city of angels. So yes, we should always act like the mic is on. And yes, we should take great care not to be the enablers because without the enablers, the perpetrators have significantly less leeway and less power. But this sermon is a sermon to remind us as we begin a new cycle with the Torah that we are our brother's keepers and we are our sister's keepers and we are our siblings keepers. We need to recognize today in the days ahead that there are very powerful forces with an interest in wedging our coalitions apart, in keeping all of the minority communities busy fighting one another while they literally dismantle our democracy before our eyes, the one thing that can actually protect us all. Cain was right. He had been wronged. He was wrong, though, to blame his brother for his struggle and for his suffering. I pray that in the days ahead, we'll see real accountability in Los Angeles. I urge our community to stand loudly and proudly with the large multiracial, multi-faith coalition of leaders and organizations demanding that the two remaining city council members resign without further delay. We demand future redistricting processes be made truly independent and we de demand an independent full review and investigation as to how the unethical and illegal consorting of elected officials around weakening black council districts and tenant council districts may have negatively impacted black and tenant communities in our city. I pray that we take a stand, that we take a stand unequivocally against this and all manifestations of racism and white supremacy in our country and in our time. And I pray that we remember that when we turn against one another, we all lose. But together, together, we can do extraordinary things. I wish you Shabbat Shalom.
Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.